Jesus Christ, the creator and sustainer of all things, through all time, putting his power, authority, and dominion on display. That is what Mark chapter 5 has for us this morning. If you here with us last week, we got a taste of that as Chad took us through the story of Jesus calming the storm, right? They're out on the boat, and it comes out of nowhere. And these are experienced fishermen who all of a sudden have no idea what to do. The sails are torn, the boat is rocking, and at the last moment they say, Jesus, don't you care? Don't you care that we're about to die? And he comes up, he rebukes the waves, he calms the storms, and the disciples are, well, they're freaked, they're scared, they're terrified. They're asking themselves, who is this Jesus? Who is this man who can command the wind and the waves? And, and just a few hours later, they get out of that boat. And that's where we're going to start our passage this morning. Mark 5, starting in verse 1. They came to the other side of the sea, to the region of the Gerasenes, As soon as he got out of the boat, a man with an unclean spirit came out of the tombs and met him. He lived in the tombs, and no one was able to restrain him anymore, not even with a chain. Because he had often been bound with shackled in chains, but had torn the chains apart and smashed the shackles. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out, and cutting himself with stones. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and knelt down before him, and he cried out with a loud voice, What do you have to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you before God, don't torment me. For he had told him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. What is your name? Jesus asked him. Well, my name is Legion, he answered him, because we are many, and him earnestly not to send him out of the region. A large herd of pigs was there, feeding on the hillside. The demons begged him, send us out to the pigs, so that we may enter them. So he gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs. The herd of about 2,000 rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned there. The men who tended them ran off and reported in the town and in the countryside, and the people went to see what had happened. They came to Jesus and saw the man who had been demon-possessed sitting there, dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those who had seen it described it to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and told about the pigs. Then they began to beg him to leave their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged him earnestly that he might remain with him. Jesus did not let him, but told him, Go home to your own people and report to them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So he went out and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and they were all amazed. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning in awe of your glory and power. We see your authority, 
your dominion so clearly in this passage and have no choice but to sit in amazement of who you are and what you are capable of. Lord, we want to lift you high this morning because you are God, because you are good, and because we are certainly not. We too often hope and trust in our own authority and our own abilities, and we confess that this morning. I want to thank you, dear God, for our our wonderful worship band, for Chad and Jared and all of our elders, the way that they lead us and love us. I want to thank you for this passage for the book of Mark and for what you have shown me in its pages this week. Finally, dear Lord, I pray that you would be active in this room today. I pray that you would soften hearts to yourself and to your gospel. I ask that your message would be communicated clearly and passionately and ultimately that your will would be done in this place and that we would all strive to align ourselves with it. Amen. So whenever Chad asked me to preach, it was probably six weeks ago now, man, I was, I was really excited. I, I always like to preach. I always like to be up here. But he said, hey, it's going to be end of Mark chapter 4, beginning of Mark chapter 5. And I was like, man, I got it. I love the story of Jesus calming the storm. It's one of my favorites. Um, and I told him, hey, that's a lot to cover. But it's no biggie. I'll just do most of Mark chapter 4. I'll connect it in with chapter 5. will be no big deal. And then about a month ago, he says, Yeah, you know what? I think that is a lot to bite off. So I'm going to do Jesus calming the storm, and you can do the demoniac from chapter 5. And I was like, All right, here we go. Um, and you know, just like, I just, everybody knows this story, but I don't know about you. I hadn't heard a lot of teaching on it, you know. Um, and so I was a little nervous, but like most things, those nerves were mostly unfounded. Um, There's tons of great stuff here. There's tons of resources about this story. And there's some wonderful themes that are sown through through the passage and that really come a lot out of um, that story of Jesus calming the storm. And so I want us to dive in and be looking for a few of those. In verse 1, it says, They came to the other side of the sea, to the region of the Gerasenes. And if you're anything like me, the region of the Gerasenes does not mean that much to you. Um, if, you're, if you're really like me, you, you would have to look up how to pronounce Gerasenes. But, it, but it's kind of interesting. It turns out that, right, it's part of this, this group of cities called the Decapolis. And, and all of these cities were actually um, founded... Uh, by Alexander the Great, right? And so there's this huge Greek influence there. And with that comes a lot of skepticism about the supernatural. And so there's been this real tension between the people of this region um, and of the Jews. Uh, Also along with that Greek influence, right, you get a lot of, we'll call it flexible moral structure. And so they were just gonna, gonna, They were going to not jive with the Jews. And then the Romans come in and they occupy this territory. And that just makes it worse. Because half of what they're teaching and showing is really just stolen from the Greeks anyway. And so the Greeks love it. They're like, Rome, bring it on. This is no problem. Which just makes things harder. But through all of that, Jesus still comes to this part. He still gets out of the boat in the region of the Gerasenes. He has come here for a reason. 
He makes a special trip to be here. Let's keep reading. As soon as he got out of the boat, a man with an unclean spirit came out of the tombs and met him. He lived in the tombs, and no one was able to restrain him anymore, not even with a chain, because he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but had torn the chains apart and smashed the shackles. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. So Jesus makes this special trip. He comes across the sea, and he's immediately encountered by this man who, if we think about it, has got to be in just as bad a shape as we imagine. Just on the surface, he's totally isolated from all of his people. The only contact he has with them is when they try and chain him up. He's got this swarm of demons inside of him, bringing him to harm himself, cut himself, so that he is screaming out, lashing out every night. That's pretty bad. But then think about it from a Jewish perspective. First off, he's a Gentile, born outside of the chosen people of Yahweh. Like I said, he's swarming with these unclean spirits. He lives in and amongst the tombs. Jews of this day would have gone through seven days of spiritual cleansing if they touched a dead body. And this man lives and walks and screams and sleeps among the tombs. And just to top it all off, these tombs are surrounded by pig farms. An unclean animal that a Jew would have nothing to do with. Church, this man is under assault. Under assault from this group of demons that Jesus has come to expose. And their mission, the mission of those demons, is a mission of disruption. A mission to tear down the image of God by torturing an image bearer. By torturing an image bearer. As we're going to see in just a second, the demons are well aware of their inability to do anything to God. And so they are fighting to do the next best thing. They are attacking his image. They are here to disrupt and fragment the way that we are supposed to live as image bearers of God. They are on a mission to sow evil and chaos into the world. And Mark tells us this story along with Luke and Matthew and both of their accounts to make it abundantly clear to us to draw sharp contrast between who these demons are and their mission and who Jesus is and his mission and his work. Look further with me here in verse 6. It says, When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and knelt down before him. And he cried out with a loud voice, What do you have to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you before God, don't torment me. For he had told him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. What is your name? He asked him. My name is Legion, he answered him, because we are many. And he begged him earnestly to send them out of the region. I love this. I love the fact that this guy doesn't wait for Jesus. 
I love that he doesn't hide from Jesus. He runs. He doesn't walk. He runs to lay down and grovel at Jesus' feet, to beg for mercy. And, and again, when we kind of put this in the context of where we are, it's pretty crazy. I mean, like, not many hours ago, Jesus' own disciples are wondering, are asking this question, who is this Jesus? Well, there's no doubt in the mind of all the demons who he is. He's the son of the most high God. And they run and they beg at his feet. You know, this, there's a point in Matthew, it's almost even better. When he talks about it, he says that the, the demons beg that, or ask if he's come to torment him before the time. The demons don't just know that they can't win. They know that their days are numbered. They know that God has already discerned a day and an hour when he's not going to put them in some pigs. He's not going to cast them out of the region. He's going to put them in the lake of fire forever. So when we ask the question, who is Jesus? We get to see what these demons saw. We get to see it very clearly that he is the divine. That he is the son of the most high God. He is the radiance of God's glory. The exact imprint of his nature. As the author of Hebrews will teach us. His divinity and authority are on full display here. But... But for just a second, there's something a little bit more. As I read this over and over and over this week, and you know, you can disagree with me here, definitely not a certain point. Um, but I think right in the middle when he asks, what is your name? I don't think he's talking to the demons. I think he's dealt with them. I think he's told them, get out of here. He knows who they are. He's talking to the man. Jesus is taking a moment in the midst of this spiritual battle to care for the man. What? What is your name? He's getting at the thing that he cares most about in this situation, which is his created, chosen, loved people. Then the demons answer, right? They say, and this, I mean, this is kind of getting into the part that we really, this is the part we hear about a lot, right? This is the part we talk about with the, oh man, it's not just one demon, it's a whole lot of demons, and oh man, he's going to send them into the pigs. And before anybody asks, when he says that his name is Legion, we are not establishing that there were exactly 5,600 demons in this guy. But we are establishing that there were a lot. We are establishing that there were perhaps an innumerable number if you will yet they're begging there's no strength in numbers for these for these demons there's no strength for them at all against this jesus verse 11 a large herd of pigs was there feeding on the hillside the demons once again begged him send us into these pigs so that we may enter them so he gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs. 
The herd was about 2,000 and rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned there. Now there are people that get really caught up on this part of the story. Um, And I don't want us to get really caught up on it. There are people that go so far as to say this is proof that Jesus did not live a sinless life. That this act of cruelty is beyond the pale um, of his of what he is allowed to do or what he could have done and maintained a sinless life. And to that, I would say they are just completely missing the point. One of the commentators that I read about this said that if, it, if you're doing that, you are stumbling over a grain of sand. Because it's the total opposite. Jesus is showing great compassion here. He is showing how much he loves and values his created people, his loved people. He's showing that, yes, it, it's a terrible loss to have these pigs gone. It would have been an enormous economic penalty for the people not to be able to raise them and sell them into the Roman army. It, it was bad. But it pales in comparison to the value that Jesus has for this man, for this person. It pales in comparison to the, to the value of someone who's been created in the image of God. You know, again, when we read Matthew, he, he's got another little point that really helps this. It, we'll get there in a few verses, but when he's talking about the people telling the story, when they go and get him and they're showing everyone what happened... Matthew makes sure to tell us that when they tell the story, they say they explain everything, especially what happened to the demon-possessed man. Anyone who was there, anyone who saw this go down, was abundantly clear what was going on. Jesus' loving redemption of a man in desperate need. That's what this is about. You know, there's also a very practical reason for Jesus to send them into the pigs. Like I talked about, these were a a Greek people. Um, These were a people who would have been super skeptical of anything supernatural. These would have been a people looking for any excuse to not believe that there were real demons, that there was a real spiritual battle going on here. And this just gave some real concrete, tangible evidence to the fact that there was something going on with this man far beyond a mere physical or even psychological problem. That there was evil indwelling this man that needed to be removed. And in order to remove it, he had to put it somewhere. Jesus is doing this. Jesus is working all of these things together so that people will believe so that people will know the evil that he's taken out of this man and know that he's saved him. Continue with me reading. The men who tended them ran off and reported it to the town and to the countryside. And people went to see what had happened. They came to Jesus and saw the man who had been demon-possessed sitting there, dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those who had seen it described it to them what had happened to the de- or what had happened to the demon possessed man and told about the pigs. Then they began to beg him to leave their region. 
The crowd comes, sees the casting out of the evil, sees the drowned pigs, sees the healed man. They see the power of Jesus on display. And doesn't this sound familiar? They're afraid. They're frightened. They're terrified. And frankly, that should not be surprising to any of us. Dr. R.C. Sproul says there's nothing more terrifying to sinful creatures than to be exposed to the holy. We could be reminded of Isaiah in chapter 6, right? He sees all of this going down and he says, Woe is me, I am ruined. Because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of armies. Church, the crowd's eyes have seen the King. The crowd's eyes have seen the Lord of armies. They have seen Jesus on full display in his power and glory, and they're afraid. They're so afraid they ask him to leave. They're so afraid there's nothing they know to do other than to try to put physical space between them and it, right? But there's one man there, and he's not afraid. There's one man there, he's been changed. Listen what he says. As he was going into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged him earnestly that he might remain with him. But Jesus did not let him. Instead told him, Go home to your own people and report to them how much the Lord has done for you, how he has shown mercy on you. So he went out and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and they were all amazed. What a wonderful picture of tension that I think all of us feel in the Christian life. We're saved by God and we live in a sort of awe of that all of the time, right? And, and that wants to draw us into Him. It wants us to search after Him. It makes us want to read about Him, learn about Him, just be consumed to come inward, But Jesus tells us that is not what the change is all about. It's about more than that. It's about proclaiming that change outward. Right? Jesus says you can't come with me because I have a bigger plan for you. He says you can't come with me because I have chosen to spread my gospel through the people I have changed. I have chosen to spread my gospel through the people I have changed. Jesus is commissioning the spread of his good news in the land of the Gentiles. And it's interesting when you think, right? We've had a few cases now in Mark, and we'll have more, where Jesus will perform a miracle, where he will heal someone, and he'll say, shh, don't tell any about, anybody about what's happening. He's managing the expectations of the Messiah. But here, there's no expectation to manage. And he says, go. He says, tell everybody. Tell everybody about what I have done in your life. Tell everybody about my salvation, my healing, redeeming power. 
If you're a believer in this room today, then Jesus has chosen to spread his gospel through you as well. And church, we have to just say that to ourselves over and over and over. We have to preach that, so, or, that to ourselves over and over and over. We've got to read verse 20 and just hold on to the hope that this man obeys and he goes out and he tells everyone and it doesn't say that he was hyper persuasive it doesn't say that he had his story all worked out it doesn't say that he had memorized the entire torah before he went it says that he told what happened to him and they were all amazed stories of salvation are amazing your story of salvation is amazing and it is powerful. The story of a loving God saving his people has to be told. Now I'm sure there are many of you doing one of these. Thinking, hey, we got Greg up there. We got the C team. He understands that I've got 17 dips to make for tonight that I have got four casseroles and three desserts in the oven, and I'm about to get out of here pretty early. Unfortunately not. <laughs> because we may have gone through verse 20, but there is one thing that we kind of skated over, and I, I don't want us to miss it. It's all the way back in verse 15 where it says, They came to Jesus and saw the man who had been demon-possessed. He was sitting there, dressed, and in his right mind. This man has gone from a state of utter chaos, brokenness, with no order. He has gone from screaming from amongst the tombs, terrorizing the countryside, breaking his shackles, cutting himself, to sitting. One person I read wrote that he started functioning once again as an image bearer of God. And, that, and I think this is so important for us and I want to spend some time here because, right, if you've been going to this church for, for any amount of time at all, you know that we talk about who God is a lot. We talk about the person and work of Jesus Christ a lot. And that's good, because we're never going to understand it all. And we constantly need to be looking for new ways, new perspectives, new ideas of how to describe and understand that. And what we see here, the perspective that we see here, is that Jesus is the bringer of order. Jesus is the eliminator of chaos. And he has been doing that for a long time. We all know John 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were created through him, and apart from him, not one thing was created that has been created. So, by this time, for about 500 years, Greek philosophers had been talking about this idea of the Logos. Um, and a man named Heraclitus was the first to really write about it. 
Um, and it's a profound idea. It is this idea that if the universe is going to operate, if the universe is going to work, there has got to be some underlying foundation. There has got to be some underlying order. But that's kind of where the Greeks stop. Ah, it's just reason. It's just order. It's just physics. It's just calculus. It's cold. It's impersonal. Well, John puts that to bed because when he writes that in John 1, he's saying that in the beginning was the Logos. And the Logos was with God and the Logos was God. Church, Jesus is the incarnate, personal Logos. He is the bringer of order. The one who penetrates the chaos of this world. The chaos that, by the way, was brought by our sin. And he eliminates it. Jesus is the one who brought order out of the void in creation. Jesus is the one who calmed the seas, bringing order to the wind and the waves. Jesus is the one who sees this man, frantic, destructive, broken, cast out, swarming with unclean spirits and with a word... He's sitting, clothed, and in his right mind. Jesus is the one who will return riding on a white horse, wearing a robe dipped in blood with a sword in his mouth to destroy evil once and for all. Jesus brings order. He is the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the Prince of of peace who makes all things new. But what's bigger than all of that? His ultimate act of bringing order was on a cross. All of that power, all of that authority, the alpha and the omega, his life laid down for you for your sins and for my sins. If you don't hear anything else, please hear that today. That there is nothing in your life too big, nothing in your life too bad, no amount of chaos too chaotic, no things too messed up, that his sacrifice is not good enough, that it can't be paid for by the blood that he shed on the cross for you. Church, I'm going to pray for us in just a minute. The band's going to come up. We're going to sing a few more songs. If you have any questions about whatever the heck I was talking about or whoever this Jesus guy is, I'll be in the, in the back on your left side if you have any questions. Dear God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for who you are. Thank you for the wonderful blessing and privilege it is to be in and amongst your church and your people today. I pray that as we go through life this today and this week and this month, that we would be reminded of this constantly, that you love us, that you're power and authority and dominion resonates through all creation. 
but that you gave all that up to come and die on a cross for our sins. Because we're more valuable than that to you. Because you love your chosen people.